Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of The Bip Show is brought to you by Akamai. Akamai powers and protects life online. Akamai has two major parts of its business. One is security and the other is edge technology or CDN, both of which are delivered via their massively distributed edge platform. On the edge technology CDN side, Akamai offers delivery and edge compute. On the security technology side, Akamai solutions surround and protect your clouds, data centers, apps, APIs, users, and also your workforce. For more information, visit www.akamai.com. And now, on with the show. Hello, you're listening to The Bip Show. Bip is for business, investing and policy. That's what we're here to talk about. Don't forget to hit subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. A reminder that all the financial information in this show is general in nature. Only speak to a professional advisor about your specific needs. I'm Paul Colgan, Director at CT Group, Research and Campaigns Consultancy. And I'm joined by James Whelan, Investment Manager at VFS Group. How are you, James? I'm good. Also on the line is Ken Vexler, head of Acumen Management, live from Amsterdam. G'day, Ken. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Colgo. How goes? Uh, goes well. Uh, yes, um, goes well. It's a warm evening here in Sydney. Um, summer hasn't fully kicked in, um, but... Uh, yeah, look, this is going to be a fun show. We haven't uh, talked about the property market for a long time uh, on uh, BIP because traffic has all been one direction, a bit like stocks. I mean, they just go up. Um, house prices going bananas across Australia, but the beast is stirring, and there are now definitely a range of questions to ask. Uh, we're going to talk rates, uh, APRA intervention, or lack thereof, maybe. Um, we'll also, importantly, look at whether 100 basis points of hikes will smash property prices by 33%. I suppose, given the rate, uh, the um, increases uh, in the rate of increase in some property prices, uh, if uh, prices went down 33%, they'd be back to where they were, you know, last Friday. Um, but first, let's do a quick run around the grounds. Um, J Power's back in, uh, James. Um, uh, uh, Ken, I, Ken, I know you've been following the, the dollar um, very closely. Um, what do you reckon? Uh, on the dollar or, or Jay Wow getting back, uh, being re, uh, re-nominated? Look, it, it, okay, let's start with the dollar. Um, I mistakenly was under the uh, impression that Irrespective of who was going to be nominated as, as you know, Fed chair for this uh, next term, the dollar index was going to take a bit of a breather and probably just just hang, you know, retrace some of the ridiculous uh, gains that it's made, uh, you know, in the last couple of weeks. That turned out to be obviously incorrect, and instead, with the renomination of JWoww, uh, the momentum's just continued. It's been one-way traffic, but net net. And, and I'm, I'm sort of at the point where I, I don't really care what the catalyst is. I'm more 
I'm more just for my own, you know, intellectual curiosity, trying to work out what the pool of potential catalysts are. But I do think that we're a lot closer to the momentum in this run-up in the in the Dixie starting to wane, um, just because, well, it, it can't be one-way traffic forever. Um, and as I said, I'm not sure what the catalyst will be, and I'm not too fussed. But one thing I have noticed, and I tweeted this the other day, is that the more frequent and the louder the calls for something to happen in the market become, the far closer, if not already done, is any available alpha of that move being squeezed out. So we're, we're, I'm just, it's the, the calls for a quicker taper, more sort of aggression out of the Fed, etc., and to be announced probably in the deck meeting, all of that is becoming a lot louder, especially with, with uh, JWoww being re-nominated. I, I'm not necessarily taking the other side, but I just start to think that, you know, we, we, we could be running out of steam. Yeah, is it as simple as a rates differential thing now with, um, you know, Japan, you know, spending huge amounts of, um, uh, got huge amounts of government spending coming, uh, Europe looking a bit on the nose uh, with, you know, lockdowns and all, all that kind of stuff in, um, in Austria and potentially Germany. Um, and uh, America just being a little bit stronger and rates likely to be higher there, is it? Do you, do you- I, I think, Colgo, I think what you've listed are all rational, justifiable, not entirely untrue, plausible reasons for X, Y, and Z unfolding. The reality of it is, though, one of those will be assigned as the cause after the fact, right? <laughs> as, as has been in markets for a long time. So that's why I was sort of saying, I'll stop trying to figure out which specifically it will be because the market will find a, a natural narrative to assign post-fact. The one thing I will say, and it's got me thinking, is that what we're seeing in terms of COVID cases blow through Europe at the moment, right? I do wonder whether the states are simply, the US rather, are simply anywhere between four and six weeks behind where Europe is in that, you know, uh, I understand obviously boosters are now being administered in the US, but what's the take up of those uh, of those boosters? Is it akin to, you know, what the vaccine take up was in Europe initially? Is it slow to begin with? You know, uh, Thanksgiving tomorrow, Christmas coming up, cold season, like a lot more time indoors. So are we going to start seeing spikes of a not an insignificant nature in the US in the next four to six weeks that will start putting a dent in potentially some of these, as I said, rational and, and, and completely normal narratives or justifications that you've just outlined, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I just don't think everything's going to be a straight line necessarily. Yeah. I, I don't know. We'll see. James, James, what do you reckon, man? What's on? things on that is that the, the DXY, the dollar index, because such a massive... I don't know, what does it care, like 60% of it or something is, is, is euro. Um, 52% is euro away. Thank you. And, and Europe right now is, uh, I've filed under B for basket case um, based on the winter shutdowns and what's going on over there. I, so Europe I'm staying away from. So it's a bit of a, a, bit of a scary thing we're sort of looking into. If maybe we now go into this stupid cycle thing of going summer reopening and then winter everything shuts down. And if that's the case, then I want to reevaluate exactly what my investment case is around the world. Which is a thing. So I think that Powell going in for another term, which is fine and, and stayed the course on that, I think there was a big part of um, money that was factored in, oh, sorry, that was potentially pricing in 
Brainard getting the nod, which would have been, you know, a very dovish sort of situation and, and more so that, uh, incredibly super dovish. But uh, Powell came in and the market came off because dollar up, rates up, yields up. But uh, if, if Europe was any stronger than probably Ken, your theory would be happening right now. Well, just when you say the market came off, so let's let's take a look at the spurs. I mean, it was off what two, three percent off the all-time highs on the like. I mean, we were forty-seven, forty. Oh yeah, it's not a thing. So, uh, I, I just I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know. Stocks aren't my thing, and it, it's just that when I see or when I hear, you know, stocks were off two percent off the fiftieth all-time high, you know, etc. I, I don't know. Uh, it's yep. just, I think mean, it's negligible. But anyway. Well, that, that being said, I've been all about margins uh, this week and retail is reporting uh, recently Target, Walmart, uh, margins getting squeezed on supply chain stuff and wage pressure uh, and uh, companies that can't handle their margins are getting absolutely stuffed locally. Banks, names are uh, sort of starting to get squeezed as well. And they're starting to get a bit of pressure as, uh, as well. Uh, on that note, Colgo. Yeah, uh, I will start. I will get us moving on. I, um, I was dying to talk about the lira. Um, no, 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 no. no. Um, but it's down for like fifty percent. Didn't even know. They're, they're expecting they're expecting inflation to be thirty to forty percent over the next two months. <laughs> That's okay. That'll help them. Is their average target so, like two percent? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So, but you know, letting it run a little hot. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, look, look, got to move on. Uh, time to introduce our guest. Um, I have been talking to Pete Wargent, who I will describe as uh, Australia's straightest shooting property commentator, about the Australian heart, uh, housing market for more than six years. I think this is the fifth podcast we've done together. Pete is a regular commentator in the media on Australia's property market and I would say a pretty fine economist in his own right. He is the author of several books on personal finance, uh, is a chartered accountant for his sins, he spent time as a director at Deloitte uh, and he's recently started a buyer's agent business in Australia, buyersbuyers.com.au. Pete advises hedge funds and various investment companies and he also recently started his own podcast, Pete Wargent's Property Pod. Pete, welcome back to The Bip Show. Thanks, Colgo. Um, like Ken, I'm actually stuck over in uh, Europe at the moment, so can't complain too much. So uh, don't believe all those pictures Ken sends of, sends of his frozen beard. We've managed to spend some of the summer on the Algarve, a bit of time in Crete, which was wonderful, earthquakes aside. But uh, got a couple more weeks in London ahead, then back to uh, Sydney via Singapore, and eventually back to God's country in sunny Queensland assuming they ever let me back in that is yeah that's right well you'll need to get a um, don't forget you'll need a PCR test and you'll have to cough up for it so um, yeah um, so uh, the Algarve gee that uh, sounds uh, appealing how was that yeah pretty much back to normal in Europe um, uh, certainly in those parts of Europe it might be a different story now though as we go into winter I think as Ken would testify, there's been a lot of cases spiking up now, despite the very high vaccination rates in a lot of European countries. Uh, still in the UK, 40,000 cases per day. Uh, so they're rolling out the third booster jabs here. So I've got my third jab coming up. Uh, so I guess the, the winter months are always a struggle in Europe and there's still that hurdle to overcome. 
Yeah, uh, and this is the thing we're learning, right? So as you get uh, the the northern alternate between the northern and the summer, uh, sorry, northern and southern winters, that you get tend to see um, an upswing in cases. So uh, we're all um, thinking of you guys up in Europe. Um, you know, uh, we're looking forward to the summer. Hopefully, low cases. Uh, everybody's vaxxed now, um, uh, pretty much, and. Um, We'll see how the summer goes, um, but we've got another winter to um, to to look forward to. Look, anyway, um, a pandemic and property has been a big thing. Where um, I'm delighted to get a bit of a, a, a chance to talk to you all about it because I know you uh, watch it extremely closely. Um, but with your podcast, right, Pete Warden's Property Pod, um, can I just say your that show is going to smash? the bip show right although it's not a fair fight right because we're over here going you know well if uh, chinese growth is maybe 4.5 percent instead of 4.75 percent then the likely impact on commodities is going to be blah 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 and then you're over there going hey there's this house in blacktown that sold for 12 million bucks guys what do you reckon like great content um that's not fair um so i i wish you the best with it but it's not a fair fight <laughs> well, hopefully you're right, Colgar. I think first rule of business is to go where the money is. Uh, I think overall it's <laughs> going to be a good time for uh, real estate, particularly market intelligence. Crypto and DeFi have been the hot tickets over the past year, but real estate market intelligence, especially if you've got prop tech and AI and machine learning and NLP, I think it's going to be a really hot sector over the, the next few years. And there's quite a lot of capital out there looking to plug into that rapid growth. So hopefully my podcast can catch on those tailwinds and knock you guys off the top spot. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, that, that, look, I think it's interesting. We just had that um, Zillow completely implode, this whole idea uh, of we can use, you know, algorithms to spot opportunities to flip properties. Um, I, I'm sure you've followed that with a lot of interest. What do you think happened there? Yeah, I think um, you've got to... If, I mean, real estate markets are local. You know, you've got to be very careful about mm. doing something based on an algorithm. And that would not be a, a sensible way to go in Australia anyway because of the stamp duty costs. It, it might be more viable in another country. But you've got to be very careful about trying to buy and sell a property based on an algorithm because by the time you've paid the solicitors, the stamp duty, the CGT, you're not going to be left with much, even if you do identify some inefficiencies. So, yeah, interesting uh, story there from the US. Um, this year has been nuts uh, for Australian house prices, uh, something like 20% gain across the year um, at a national level. Um, look, all sorts of things at play. Uh, the great relocation, as people realise they don't need to be physically near an office. Um, you know, record low rates, uh, illiquid market um, and do, do you think of um, uh, this issue of like say with you know we see it in, in equities where you've got a micro cap you know where it may be closely held by the founders or the owners um, and uh, it's not a very liquid stock there's not much uh, not many shares trade hands every day and you can tend to see some wild price action as a result um, because it's hard for people to move in and out of positions. Same thing happened in property, do you think? Um, you know, so when there's a, when there's less supply, there's a, essentially a liquidity effect um, that, that can make prices whip around. Do you think that's an issue? Uh, 
Well, it, it's 100% the effect. If you look at particularly Australia's coastal markets, water is a big draw card in Australian real estate. It's the liquidity that's the issue. I was trying to teach my daughter the other day when she was um, washing the car, or I was trying to get her to wash the car, that if you've got a, a hose pipe and you put your thumb over the, the hose pipe, you, you're trying to squeeze the same amount of water through a lot smaller space. Well, that's what has been going on in the coastal markets. There's been virtually no stock the sale and if you look at central coast or northern new south wales or byron um, sunshine coast gold coast even new south wales south coast those markets have been going nuts we've seen 50 percent gains uh, mornington peninsula the same uh, so definitely a liquidity issue there uh, the flip side of that is uh, as you mentioned people getting away from those cbd areas there's been kind of this race for space and a lot of those high-rise towers have got facilities that you haven't been able to use, like pools and gymnasia. And people have just naturally wanted to get away from uh, those denser locations during a pandemic, which makes natural sense, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think it's, uh, you know, it's certainly a, a matter of there definitely being more buyers than sellers. You know, there's this convention that you all say, well, there's always an equal number of buyers and sellers, but there's a queue of buyers, right, at the moment for any property that comes on the market, particularly in desirable areas. Um, uh, yeah, so all adding up to, um, as uh, I said at the top uh, of the show, one-way traffic. Um, in the past couple of weeks, though, um, ANZ and CBA uh, have started projecting falls in house prices uh, in 2023. Um, uh, let's start on BIP show comfortable ground and look at how the macro environment, before we get into any specifics, and we have to actually talk about the mechanics of the property market where, where we'll more be sort of making it up as we go along. But look, um, uh, th- th- that's why you're here, Pete. Um, but let's start with the macro environment. Um there definitely is upward pressure on rates uh, in money markets, if not quite yet on official interest rates at a global level. Um, fixed rates, we've noted on the show a few times in recent weeks, have been ticking up um, from a lot of the lenders. Uh, can you walk us through what's happening in the Australian market in terms of costs for mortgages and borrowing costs and what the likely impact is uh, from here? Yes, yeah, so the... Um the term funding facility, which is one of the unconventional measures that's been in place, that, that has been wound back from uh, the middle of this calendar year. So fixed rates are already on the rise. I think we knew that was coming. Uh, variable rates haven't really gone up, though. So there's been, um, well, if you went back even a quarter ago, we had a record high share of new borrowers taking out fixed rate loans. That is now uh, has gone into reverse and people are looking at the variable rate. So but the cost of money is rising. I think uh, market insiders obviously knew that a few months ago. Uh, but in terms of the actual cash rate, well, I was actually chatting to David Scott on my show uh, just a few days ago, big friend of the BIP show, of course. And um, I thought, well, if anybody knows what's going to happen to the cash rate, it's probably Dave. And his thinking is that we might well get start to see the hiking cycle kick off late 22, early 23. But as he pointed out, the, the chance of the uh, this cycle or seeing the cash rate get much above 1% is basically between Buckley's and no chance. So I think the cost of money is rising and mortgage rates are starting to creep up, but not necessarily in a very significant way at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, So speaking of thinking about how, uh, like, you you know, you you mentioned the 1% level. Um, 
Chris Joy or Christopher Joy, um, who uh, I've spoken, I've actually chatted to a couple of times by coming on the show. I'm sure we'll get around to that at some point. Um, uh, but you know, obviously, Chris is uh, forthright, um, opinionated, very, very smart, um, and uh, but it, he had something recently in one of his columns where he said that some of his modeling at Coolabah Capital uh, that he says is based on the RBA's internal model. Uh, so Peter Tulip, who's now at the uh, XRBA and now at the Center for Independent Studies, um, he said, Chris said in a live wire column that this model suggests uh, according to him, and I'm quoting, that dwelling values could drop by 33% following 100 basis points of hikes. Uh, what do you think, Pete? Realistic? Um, well, I love Chris Joy, by the way. I've been reading his stuff for a decade or more. Always got some great insights. Uh, but I think a, a cash rate going from 0% to 1% crashing the housing market, I don't think so. That, that doesn't pass the sniff test. Now, a regulatory clampdown could change things if we've got a credit squeeze, but not just a 1% cash rate. Now, if you work through the, uh, well, if you look at the Tulip and Saunders model, there's basically four reasons why um, a, a hike in the cash rate to 1% doesn't get you to uh, the big sort of crash numbers that you might be thinking about. We can step through those points. Um, I mean, firstly, and this is a big one, the, the response of housing prices in any sophisticated housing market model should be non-linear so logically interest rate cuts should have had a greater impact as rates got closer to zero um so if you rewind the clock say 30 odd years ago in 1990 the overnight rate fell from what 17 percent to 12 percent in a year but in real terms what followed was a terrible period for real housing prices why because nominal rates were high and there was still a fear of high inflation now since the may 2019 election the cash rate has gone from 1.5% to 0.75%, and then in February 2020 to 10 basis points. Now, that is real rocket fuel, and that's why we never bought into the, the major housing price declines forecast in 2020. It just wasn't going to happen. And you'll actually remember last time we came on this show at the time of the 2019 election, I actually cautioned as well to watch out for the, the ScoMo put, which we have seen yeah. all these stimulus measures. Now, if you look at central banking, you've got this punch bowl analogy. So, well, since 2019, going from a cash rate of 1.5% down to zero lower bound, I mean, that's like letting the housing market party skull the entire punch bowl and run a, a celebratory nude lap of marketplace. Now, <laughs> yes, you can snatch the punch bowl away, but everyone at the party is still going to be blotto for a while, basically, because unconventional measures of punch have seen market participants really hitting the turps hard and it's fueled this orgy of investment. Now, further to that, we've also reset market expectations with these unconventional measures like mortgage holidays, about the term funding facility and so on. So I don't think a 1% cash rate is too big a hurdle for the housing market to overcome. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, jo uh, Joanne Masters uh, on the Christmas uh, special last year and Christmas specials coming up everybody get ready we're can't all very wait, excited wait. Uh, cannot wait um, but Joe last year made this excellent point which is like she was like you know if rates are up like who cares like what are they going to be one percent maybe um, you know well, money's still uh, going to be cheap uh, keep in mind uh, apparently banks are supposed to have been testing people for a serviceability of 
what exactly? Like a few above where it is right now. Three mm. percent, yeah. So three hundred basis points now, based on the new borrowers. And exactly as Colgo and Joe pointed out, there uh, one of the other key assumptions in such a model is that a dramatic prediction of say thirty three percent crunch would need to assume no other change in macro variables. That's not realistic. If the cash rate's rising, we should be expecting improving economic conditions, stronger wages growth higher inflation expectations so yeah. in my opinion over the next couple of years we should expect employment growth and population growth to come roaring back so that should offset a one percent increase in interest rates so we could see an extra half a million on the population in the next couple of years employment probably at 13 and a half million and there's a couple of other factors as well i mean secondly or thirdly i should say inflation is exogenous in a RBA's housing market model. So the modelling estimates are really based on changes in real interest rates. So if inflation expectations are going to move materially higher, then any related impact on housing prices has got to be correspondingly lessened. And given Tulip and Saunders we used in a model in 2019 to isolate the impact of lower real mortgage rates, it doesn't really make sense to translate those estimates across the forecast today because the context is not the same. Uh, that, I was actually just about to ask you about the model and, and the RBA model with, with regards to where Chris Joyce sort of came up with his side of things. The, anything anything else to add to that? Oh, look, I think, um, and I could be speaking out of school here, but I think when I, Chris Joyce actually clarified in, in one of his articles, maybe on Livewire, I think he said, well, his model is he's refined it and it doesn't come up with as big a number as 33%. So I think maybe he's gone through the numbers and come to a similar conclusion uh, to mine then maybe but uh, I think there's there's another uh, you know like a minor but somewhat significant point and that, that's that any impact on housing prices from changes in real rates I mean that would be relative to your baseline forecast right so if your forecast is for housing prices to say go up by 2% per annum then it's only relative to those numbers that the impact on prices would be seen and I, I think most of the major banks are forecasting increases in housing prices in 2022 before something of a, re- a reversal in 2023. Um, I have a question all the way from the peanut gallery in, in Amsterdam. Um, the cost of carry of, of waiting for the Australian property market to properly shit the bed is just, it's been astronomical, right? Uh, what's it going to take for and if and when Will the property market, like, what's going to cause a proper, proper blow-up? Anything? Can it? Other, and I, I mean that as distinct to a slowdown in the momentum or the pace of actual year-on-year growth, right? So if we're growing at 20% a year, fine. We can grow at zero, right? That, that's a reversion. But that's not a crash. That's just a slowdown in growth. I'm talking about can anything and will anything or what will it be cause a proper shitting of the bed? Well, I think we've seen that, Ken, in the last 18 months or two years. Uh, clearly, the central bank has got no appetite to see such a, a blow-up. And we're coming into an election period. Well, but in the last election, Labour was actually taking a whole load of policies to the election that could potentially have been very serious for the housing market. If you change capital gains tax, you change negative gearing rules, you change the appetite for investors in the market. But this time around, it seems like housing policy is going to be nothing more material. So I think this is the thing. It's not really a level playing field when it comes to housing, when you've got uh, political parties and a central bank who've got no real appetite 
to see the market correct. So uh, people complain about this all the time at me on social media. But as you said, you've, you've got to play with the hands that you're dealt. And uh, yeah, look, uh, I suppose you'll never say never, but I've never really bought into some of these doomsday predictions that we've seen probably now for about what, 18 years or so uh, since the Sydney boom post-Olympics. I still remember when I bought my place in uh, in Northridge that someone forwarded me the uh, the front page of the financial review saying that housing uh, the housing market had topped. He's just like, oh wow, James, you bought it at the wrong possible time. So, okay, mate. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's about doubled since then. So the uh, now speaking of the election, now you did touch on that. So uh, short money is on May um, second. Uh, the second best guess is going to be on March next year for an election. Housing affordability obviously is a big key agenda especially with regards to a whole generation of people who might have a little bit of trouble tapping into that market. Um, what and You mentioned people sort of coming at you on social media or, or, or raising questions with you. So what, what are the main key factors on that side? What, what sort of policies are the, are the other sides going to be uh, going to be taking? Labor cannot possibly go to another election with, with, uh, with what they came at last year with negative gearing or franking credits. So don't worry about franking credits, but negative gearing. Um, yeah, well, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think this time around, the ALB is clearly going to try and make itself a small target. Last time, uh, they went in with some big ticket items, franking credits and dividend imputation and the housing market policies. It was going to give it a war chest. Um, I think this time around, um, any sort of housing-related policies are going to be much more modest. Um, I haven't even read today's news yet, but I saw that um, there's headlines there about the coalition going with the tagline, we're the, the party of home ownership. So I suspect what they're preempting there is we'll see home ownership rates have actually increased over the last couple of years because of the, the first home loan deposit scheme and the first home buyer stimulus. So I don't think it's going to be such a big um, issue this time around. I mean, if you look at the what the bookies are saying, last time around, Labour were winks odds going into the actual election day. <laughs> Polling was all pointing yeah. to an easy win. <laughs> this time around, the bookies are much more circumspect about it. They've got ALP at about $1.90 and the coalition at two fifteen. So I, I don't think um, Labour's going to go in with any groundbreaking policies this time because they, they're probably just trying to make themselves a smaller target. Yeah, remember the old rule in, uh, in politics that uh, oppositions don't win elections, governments lose them. So that's... Uh that's where that's uh, that's coming in. So, uh, I've I've got this here, Colgo. Yeah, can I can I just um, chime in with one thing? Go. Note from our sponsors. This episode of the Bit Show is brought to you by Akamai. Akamai powers and protects life online. Akamai offers solutions for DDoS mitigation, application, and API protection, stopping account takeover and bot attacks. On the enterprise security side, Akamai offers scalable and secure remote access and protection against the threats, targeting your workforce, such as phishing and malware. For more information, visit www.akamai.com. And I've said it before, Akamai saved our bacon uh, a couple of times uh, in my previous life in in digital publishing but um there you go now um pete can we stir the pot a little bit um Mm. uh i I think um you know going back to the christmas special coming up um we always have a best and worst calls of the year um and this has been like since we were doing podcasts at business insider i think i've been giving worst calls of the year 
going back, this will be year five or six of the Christmas special, and um, I give worst call of the year to the to the property bears every year. You know, um, this is it. It's going. The Ponzi is going to collapse. Um, so, but look, let's take this head on, Pete. Um, there is a you know persistent view of the Australian property market that it's a population Ponzi, right? So this theory that rising house prices for decades have relied on the steady but strong migrant intake over time. Um, so we've had shut borders um, for a year and a half. House prices are up probably 25% in that time. Um, so has pandemic, you know, um, put paid to that theory? Or do you think it's, do you think population and migration is still an essential part of the um, price equation for Australian property? Uh, yeah, I think it's a yes and no answer. I know, as you mentioned at the outset, there's always wild tales about um, you know, a house in Blacktown selling for the proverbial 12 million over reserve or whatever. But when you muddle all this stuff out, the Aussie market is generally speaking more rational than you might think. I mean, if it was a bubble, why hasn't it burst over the past 20 years? Um, I'll give you an example. I was chatting to Gareth Brown from Forager Funds uh, just recently. He's just bought a house uh, recently. But exactly as he said, you've got to factor in the future expectation of population growth and mm. the restricted supply of family appropriate housing. So, look, if the Aussie population is heading to let's say 40 million by 2060, then Sydney and Melbourne will be 11 million each. Brisbane and Perth will be 6 million each. Adelaide will be 2 million. In the end, though, there's only so much well-located land. So, yeah, we could see um, a, a shift to the regions, but I, I just think over the long run, that's what the market tends to price in. People factor this in uh, when they, they're buying their well-located blocks in uh, Sydney's in the south or eastern suburbs or wherever it may be and I think overall the market is more rational than people tend to assume yeah I mean yeah that worries me um, 11 million people in Sydney you know we're going to need a big, bigger city where are we going to put them all <laughs> like, one of the things about Sydney and I believe one of the reasons that the um, property prices are so strong here is that it's it, it's got physical boundaries you know so like you've got the mountains to the west, um, you've got the Hawkesbury to the north. So you obviously you can go up to Newcastle, etc. But then you've got you know um, uh, Wollongong and sort of Jervis Bay, Jervis Bay all the way down south. Um, but it's really you know when you get down to the Shire, I mean that's the end of the city. So um, yeah. you know it's a confined space. Um, Even before that. The, uh, it's literally a basin. It's Sydney is, is in there. If only someone could come up with a way to get people from one place to another place really, really fast. What you mean, like a boat? Yeah, look, I think uh, I think my mental arithmetic might be off there. I'm, I'm thinking of the long range projections over the century. But but even if you're saying by 2060, then you know Sydney and Melbourne are approaching nine million, and that's coming from. And uh, there is always this thing about where do you measure Greater Sydney from? Do you include include the Central Coast? I mean, basically, if you look at uh, the population projections and bring it down to the SA4 level, it's got to be higher density because um, comparatively speaking, certainly if you compare to European cities, uh, Sydney and Melbourne aren't actually that dense. I know it feels like it if you're in Potts Point or if you're stuck in traffic, but um, we haven't done the high density thing on a widespread scale. It's only really since 2012 that we've started to see that in places like Parramatta, Blacktown and some of those construction hotspots. Ken? So, 
Yeah, no, I was just going to ask Pete. Um, so the theory was, as Colgo pointed out, with borders closed, you know, and, and the intake of migrants and general population growth adding as a consequence, now all of a sudden, apparently, or believe it when I say it, borders are reopening, right? So I sort of know the answer to this question, or at least I have my own view on it, but my, my question to you is over, we can't call it the short term, over the, let's say, the, the medium term, at least 18 months, let's call it, right? How do you see the current situation evolving as a consequence of, of borders reopening, presumably skilled migrants being let back in, you know, everything sort of reverting back to the before times, as it were. How, how do you see the situation, not not just in the property market, but I suppose the labour force and the knock-on effect, how do you see that evolving? Oh, there's a lot of moving parts here because even as I'm finding myself, they're changing the rules all the time about when you can come back in and what you can do. I think at the top level, the economy should do 5% growth for FY22 and it should do the same again in FY23. And I, I think generally the unemployment rate should be heading to 4% by the end of next year. And we should see with, I mean, if you look at um, Alan Pickering was posting the, the, the job postings figures earlier today, the, 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 um, the amount of um, capacity out there or the, the hiring um, advertisements, they're, they're way higher than they were pre-pandemic, um, especially um, in a couple of uh, states in particular. I mean, look at uh, the, the hiring potential for somewhere like Sydney. Um, so, look, I suppose it's going to be downward pressure on wages growth if we get international students back and um, there's talk of increasing uh, the skilled uh, migrant intake and, and the net overseas migration figures and the permanent migrants, you know, the cap at 160,000 might go up to 200. So that might keep the lid on thing, things. I guess the question is what happens to inflation? Uh, I'm very doubtful whether the on the trimmed mean measure, will it actually get back to 3% by the end of 23? It's, um, yeah, maybe, but uh, are we going to see that sustainable wages growth? Because that, that has really been the dynamic in Australia since the early mining boom re- years, really is that we've had such a high rate of population growth and wages growth has not really been significant since about, what, 2012. I think in the housing market, we'll see the rental markets finally starting to tighten in CBDs. There's been a lot of empty units. Melbourne CBD, South Bank, South Yarra, uh, Sydney CBD is the same from what I understand, although I haven't been. Um, So from a housing market perspective, it brings demand back and renters back in. Uh, but for the economy, well, it should be a good couple of years, assuming uh, things don't change too much. But as we know, a bit of a fool's errand during a pandemic trying to predict too far ahead. Um, um, uh, actually, on that, so let's say, as you mentioned, the next couple of years for the Australian economy should be good, as you as you say. Uh, on the back of base effects coming from, from a fairly low level courtesy of the pandemic or other factors, because I think it's just base effects, mate. I mean, I'm not saying that... The economy is going to be horrible post that, but I think you know it's not going to do anything outrageous considering the digging shit out of the earth is becoming less and less of a priority to the globe, and we're becoming less uh, less intrinsic in that, and China's becoming a bit more of a worry. What are your thoughts? Oh, on yeah, that? look, you're exactly right. In fact, um, not just on GDP, if you look across any number of metrics, a lot of the graphs and charts just don't make sense in recent times because we've seen a big contraction and then things explode back on the rebound. I think um, we will find um, from 2022 that the construction, uh, all of that stimulus that's been poured into the the housing market that we talked about 
um, last time we were on probably, uh, things like the home builder stimulus. Well, all of that's going to start going into reverse eventually. Uh, we've seen a massive sugar hit to construction. So, yes, headline numbers are going to be very impressive, sort of 5% GDP growth. But if you strip out some of these um, sort of base effects and the fact, accounting for the fact you're coming uh, from a very restricted period, uh, I mean, look, Ken, you're in Europe, you've probably seen something similar. I think you get this initial euphoria, you know, kind of a hedonism trade on the reopening. But eventually things are going to get back towards something more like normal. And I guess that's when you really find out how sustainable is the rate of wages growth, how sustainable is the rate of growth in the economy. And it's, it's not going to be at those kind of levels. And we've still got some way to go, I think, before we get back to full employment in Australia. The, the headline numbers look impressive, but, yeah, the labour force has obviously shrunk at various periods. So, yeah, look, it's, I think it's um, an interesting time. I think we'll see some impressive headline numbers, but there's a way to go before things are really humming. Yeah. Um, I, I do want to talk about – I'm interested that you mentioned – that you think the rental market in CBDs might start to turn. Um, <clears throat> do you think that the the demand is going to be there to make that a reality? Like in terms of what you you know getting some tightness back into that market. Yeah, I think um, the thing is, if you look at CBD rents, they've actually fallen very significantly by you know, in some cases a third, other times they've fallen by a half. So I think the units will fill up. But I think there's there's a bigger picture question here, and that is the um, the, the more flexible working arrangements that mm. employers are putting on offer. So we've got a few investors from uh, Atlassian and Safety Culture in our business and on our board advisory. And what they're telling us is that the tech sector is finding it, well, it's become almost impossible to hire somebody unless you offer flexible and or remote working arrangements. So, yeah, the people are going to be looking for more home office space and good Wi-Fi, and it doesn't necessarily mean that people have to be based close to Surrey Hills or close to the CBD. I think there's going to be a lot of people keeping a toehold in some of those uh, peri-urban locations where they can get to the city if they need to. Uh, so I, th- I think there's been a bit of a shift there away from CBDs, and there's a big amount of supply there anyway to be taken up. So I don't know about tight rental markets in the CBDs. I just guess the units will fill up because the rents have dropped so much. Yeah, yeah. Um, Adelaide uh, Timbrell from ANZ, uh, we've had on as a guest, um, and uh, she's been a regular uh, feature on our live events on Twitter, um, those spaces things that we do. Um, uh, But Adelaide is one of the brightest people um, you'll talk to. I have spoken to a lot of economists over the years, Um, but she is like she is incredibly smart and uh, a lateral thinker and uh, very uh, incredible command of detail. But Adelaide has pointed out this issue in the market with people looking for the extra room, right? Um, so um, that can serve as an office. Uh, so how, how significant do you think this is? Because you 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 read you know demographers. I'm not going to name names, but. You know, these demographers and futurologists saying that this is an epochal shift and, you know, and they're definitely talking their own book because in some ways, because it's like, well, my job is to sort of divine the future and, you know, a, a whole bunch of people. We've been through a traumatic uh, event uh, in terms of the way people live and work. Um, but 
there's this view that this is kind of changing, going to change society forever, um, you know, is dramatically going to change land use and demand for property, for certain types of properties, um, and the kind of shapes of the homes that we live in to that point about, you know, having the extra room. Um, what, what do you think, Pete? Like, I know you 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 think very carefully about this and you see the dynamics in the market. Um, so I'm really keen to hear what you think about that issue. Yeah, well, I think that um, um, Adelaide's point on the, the home office, well, yes, I, I mean, I'm in a home office right now. So I think that, that point will definitely stand. Uh, my general view is, you know, humans are sociable creatures and things are going to normalise because people like the buzz of being in the city. I can't wait to get back to the clock hotel and hang out in Sydney for a few weeks. You know? So I think things will normalise, but I don't think they're going to go completely back to normal. I mean, take me as a case in point. I lived in Sydney for a dozen years, but now I live in Noosa. Why not? I can go to Sydney or Melbourne whenever I need to. And um, just thinking about some of the changes in working arrangements. So I, I mean, I had a serviced office space that must in place around, I guess, 2011 or 2012. And Back then, there was basically three blokes. There was one insanely annoying guy who always used to kind of slurp on a can of Dr. Pepper and basically just crickets. If you went there today, the place would be absolutely crawling with small business entrepreneurs, IT nerds. Uh, WeWork came along and that caused all of these service of services, service offices to have major refurbs. So look, there's far less office space per person now uh, required so that's definitely going to have a knock-on impact to office occupancy, commercial rents, and commercial supply. Despite what the fund managers might tell you, <laughs> I think um, some of those trends are, are going to be here to stay. Because why would you go and ex- uh, sort of re- rent an expensive big CBD office when most people actually don't expect it or need it? I've uh, actually had uh, some people from Mervac who have said that, uh, look, there's just as much demand for commercial space because we need more space because people need separation between desks because of the ongoing need for COVID separation, which is an interesting sell, an interesting point. (laughs) I I actually just checked, Pete, and and we last spoke, we had you on the show on the 26th of June last year. And I think that we actually did talk about if, if we saw there being a future in Sydney and in cities, especially in Sydney, of, of the conversion from commercial to, to, to residential. Uh, and I'm going to double check to make sure what, what we actually said that day, because I can't remember what we all said, but I think I was pretty convinced that the conversion to residential was going to be a, a, an absolute, basically a, a guarantee. What do you think? I, now? I remember the conversation, huh? I'm now just thinking, oh, God, who else, who did we defame in that show? We might need to go back and edit it. Uh, but no, I remember the conversation and you saying, uh, and this um, in real time, you know, that was actually a much more difficult time to, to work out what was going on. But you quite clearly said we're going to see uh, some of these um, buildings eventually shifting in terms of their use, probably towards the residential use over time. And I think you're absolutely right. I think your, your point's on... Uh, extra space because of the pandemic. I, I suppose I mean, that's a, a sort of a valid point. <laughs> that, uh, I know that hospitals have actually said the same thing. In many cases, they've got fewer ICU beds because they've had to have more space uh, between them. But, I mean, that's a temporary issue. The bigger picture is you know, what is going to happen um, post uh, the reopening. And I, I just think there's, there's been a general shift towards things like Zoom meetings and uh, virtual 
meetings, uh, more working from home, more flexible work. And some of that is clearly going to stick around. Um, I think it would be naive to think otherwise. Yeah, there's a pretty significant social change that's going on in people, what they're demanding, like you were just saying, what people are actually demanding to work. Um, it's amazing that you've actually got uh, on your advisory board. Who did you say again? Sorry, Pete. Oh, yeah. So on our, our company, so a bit of a plug, buyersbuyers.com.au. So we, uh, we're Australia's only national marketplace for property advice, property buying services. We're also building out the ancillary services related to buying property, like home loans and insurance and so mm. on. Uh, so we've got our advisory board. We've got a couple of guys from Atlassian, another one from Safety Culture. And yeah, they're just saying that the skill shortage is, has been acute across a number of sectors. But for a business uh, that's in the tech space, I mean, good luck trying to hire somebody if you're going to require them to be in the office five days a week. There's nobody available or willing to do it. So Never going to happen. Um, you know, and if the most attractive firms in the country are finding that, well, you know, it's going to have a knock-on impact across other smaller businesses and right across various sectors. You know, if you... If you're trying to hire somebody, there's a lot of competition for talent. Um, well, you're probably going to have to offer them uh, some more flexible or remote working arrangements, or and maybe two or three days in the office instead of five. Yeah, people want to get away, but they don't want to be away for too long. So the also families have been used to people being at home, and kids are used to you know parents at home. It's just lovely, sort of good social interaction and. Everything's healthy. It's, it's it's just wonderful. I feel like we've learned so much in the last year. It really has. Now, Pete, uh, at some stage, uh, Colgo, we're going to have to stop asking people this question because we've moved past the the, the, the point of no return. But Peter, is inflation transitory or not? Um, well, I think supply chains have been disruptive, but it seems to me that the world is opening up again and just as the RBA said, all those factors which caused low inflation haven't gone away. Um, I think Governor Lowe did a speech a couple of weeks ago and he sort of said, well, look at you know, globalisation, improvements in technology, the ability to outsource work to Asia. So, uh, yeah, wages are expected to go up from here. But at this point, um, it doesn't look like we're going to be in a situation where the data and forecasts are warranting hiking cash rates because of runaway inflation. I'm sure there's lots of moving parts and so on, but I'm leaning towards the transitory camp. Um, I think uh, it's a good motto in life, you know, things are rarely as good or as bad as they seem, and I think a lot of this stuff will calm down in time. Yeah, there's a bit of talk about how the, um, uh, like, semiconductors, chip manufacturers uh, are back to 100% um, capacity um, it's taken them a long time, but they they finally got back to their full operation capacity, and uh, obviously then delivery and shipping is another question. But that's slowly also being ironed out. Um, I don't know if you saw in California the issue that they had, where there was a local law that says that shipping containers could only be stored, I think, too high. Uh, like you can only stack one on top of another <clears throat> in um in a container yard, and that this bylaw was causing obviously massive capacity problems because there's only so much space that you you know all these containers coming from China and there's nowhere to put them. So then you get the backup at uh, the port of Los Angeles, um, and they changed the law and you can stack them four high now. I think. Um, 
which is, you know, scary on its own. Um, you know, four shipping containers stacked one on top of another. But that, you know, these kind of things are like those decisions um, are coming through. Some of the, um, I think, sh- shipping rates from China. Um, there's a chart just from memory, and that looks like it has kind of topped out, like it was basically parabolic for a while, um, but it's kind of topping out now. So, um, yeah, there there definitely is. I think the the other interesting part of this equation is the wages, right? So, um, Pete, what you were saying about the the labor uh, market, um, people demanding you know, certain conditions, etc., And, you know, um, that might sort of come through into pay when people have more pay, companies have more pricing power. Um, so, yeah, it's certainly going to be an interesting couple of years. Um, and that'll obviously feed into rates, Pete. Um, so we talked about 100 basis points earlier. <laughs> Feels like a long time ago now. Um, but what do you think is going to happen to rates? Yeah, well, I think uh, that's what I was chatting to Scotty about only this week and Look, his view is pencil in late 2022 for a first rate hike, maybe early 2023. But I think when uh, Governor Lowe is talking about, well, maybe uh, we could get the cash rate back to 3 to 4% because, you know, that would show uh, sustainable wages growth and back above 3%. Uh, you know, I think realistically, when you look at the, the household debt in Australia, that would just suck far too much cash out of the economy. And I think realistically, we're not going to see a big hiking cycle like that. And you know, Dave's base case is, well, maybe 100 basis points or so. Um, so I, I would probably, that feels about right to me. You know, you can spend a lot of time trying to second guess this stuff, but clearly um, the next move is going to be up and, you know, New Zealand seems to be heading in that direction, uh, but it's probably not on the horizon just yet. Yeah, yeah. What's, what's the cash rate in New Zealand now? Um, have, they, they, have they bumped it? Up a couple of times. Nine twenty-five today. Oh, okay. Not fifty. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Um, okay, uh, Pete. This has been a fantastic chat, and I can't let you go um, without talking about rugby. Um, a great uh, weekend for the home nations. Um, the autumn nations series actually has been fantastic, hasn't it? Yeah, look, I've been watching a bit. I've been enjoying uh, Marcus Smith's early forays into the international game. The only thing is, every time I switch on the TV, I mean, I'm obviously busy with a couple of toddlers running around, but every time I flick it on, somebody's being sent off for a high tackle mm. or clearing out a ruck. You know, Valentini, Lavanini, it's running the game. They've got to uh, toughen up a bit uh, because you're having red cards every five minutes. It's um, very disruptive, but otherwise very enjoyable. Yeah, yeah. Well, look. Can, can we? Can, can I just briefly ask about how Wales got to play with sixteen men? Like, what the fuck was that? <laughs> like that? I, honestly, like Australia when they played England, Australia was woeful. They deserved to get thrashed, and they, and they basically did. When they played Wales, they had actually glimmers of, of cohesiveness. They were playing all right. But what the fuck was that? Six? Like that ref was a joke. He should never ever referee. Anything again, including schoolboy park footy. Who like, was the referee? The hey, who, who was the referee? Um, Nigel fucking nobody. I'd literally never heard of him, and hopefully never will again. Like I've never seen refereeing as bad <laughs> as the only thing I can 
counter that with is Jonathan Kaplan in his heyday. He was fucking woeful, right? <laughs> this bloke was on par. Right? That was just... Sorry, you fired me it was, up. It was a weird call the knockdown ball and then allowing oh, that time to go. So all all the, the, you know, the, the, the Welsh wheeling the scrum. Oh, no, that'll go against Australia. All <laughs> manner of shit. You know, like, fuck off. 16, <laughs> 16 men, all with the last man, Jones. Yeah. Well, well, uh, um, I, I thought you know Wayne Barnes has a has an interesting history with New Zealand, um, but I did say I did see that um, you know after New Zealand got thumped by France in what was the best game. I mean, uh, look, the Ireland New Zealand game was momentous. Um, I, that was such a great game to watch, but I haven't seen a game like the the New Zealand France game in years. Holy wow! What like what a match! Um, but you know, I, I share your, the concern about the refereeing. Um, like, there's too many whistles and stop-start. Um, but I thought it was funny that you know Kiwis are angry at Wayne Barnes because France thumped them. But France like flogged them. They were France were all over the All Blacks. It was great to watch. So it's super exciting. Um, you know, tight contest. Um, World Cup. A um, couple of years away, so yeah, I can't wait. Good old Ireland. D- do you think it might be finally Ireland's turn? Anyone? No. <laughs> oh, we, we, you'd love it. To oh, you mean winning, winning like the world? No, an actual <laughs> World Cup. <laughs> I reckon they'll get. No, in fairness, I reckon they'll get close. But yeah, I, I, do they have? Do they have the 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 energy to run that momentum through an entire tournament and win the final? Yeah. Not yet, but maybe by the time the cup runs around, maybe. I think they're contenders. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. They need a bit of depth, all right, in the squad. Yeah. Uh, Pete Wardent, this has been really uh, great. Um, thank you so much for coming back on the show, mate. Pleasure, Colg. I will have to give our business a plug, otherwise our CEO is going to cut my balls off if I don't. So uh, buyersbuyers.com.au. So we use highly sophisticated AI and machine learning tools. So jump on there, check it out, use some of the free tools there. And we've got a unique where to buy report using our algos, which can guide you on where and what to buy for your budget. Get a lot of downloads there. So we also use the AI for consumer screening and matching and portals and so on. So it's a rapid uh, growth phase for uh, prop tech and AI. So give us a Check out there at the website, buyersbuyers.com.au. We've got great executive team from Westpac and NAB. So there we go. I've done the plug. So, uh, yeah. Lauren, if you're listening, uh, I did say something about uh, there wasn't an F-bomb and there's nothing to do with rugby. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, hello, Dorn. And, um, uh, uh, Pete, I will actually give you one other free kick because I thought this is an interesting thing, that buyers agents are, like, relative to other markets – Buyers agents so far in Australia only represent a tiny fraction of transactions, whereas in the States it's, you know, pretty much standard thing to do, right? Yeah, it's about 3% in Australia because the fee model has been to charge people twenty five to 40000 per transaction in Sydney or Melbourne, <laughs> uh, whereas if you go to the States, they're very different model and therefore most people will use a buying agent at some point in the process. So, look, it's a huge addressable market, plus we've got international expansion plan so it's an exciting time for us and it's an industry that needed a shake up and uh, just the right time to do it now people doing more virtual inspections more use of um, ai and algos as you mentioned so yeah 
interesting times. So if there's any fundies listening or VCs, uh, give us a hoi. Uh, so are, are you telling me that you might be able to um, shift the perception of people working in the real estate industry? Oh, look, uh, I, I think it's um, it's a given that um, like buying a, a house or a home or an investment property is probably one of the biggest financial decisions that people make. And yet, historically, people have done it all themselves. It doesn't really make sense these days with all of the tools that are available to us. Um, so, I mean, you can use an agent. You can also do a lot of stuff desktop these days. And uh, you really should be looking to de-risk that process. So, um, yeah, it's an industry that needed... Uh, sort of shaking up a little bit and that's what we've been doing it's been uh, fantastic um, and uh, just a quick uh, note to our listeners as well uh, apologies for any ambient sounds um, the, uh, the the glorious background noise of the inner west uh, in Sydney uh, we had a couple of um, uh, 747s uh, so you know nature is healing um, the airport is back up and running here um, but look uh, don't forget to subscribe to the show rate us and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts you can find us on iTunes at The Bip Show or wherever you normally listen to that stuff we're on Twitter it's at the underscore bip underscore show and we're on Facebook too just search The Bip Show James has a website which is now hosting all the extras we can't get to on the show including a few trades and positions folks might want to have a look at uh, Google Wheel and Capital and follow the links to the BIP show. We're there individually on Twitter at Colgo, at James Whelan42, and at Ken Vexler. And you can find Pete at, at Pete Wargent. Uh, so, uh, James, it's been real. Sure has. Has. And uh, uh, Ken, great to hear your dulcet tones again. Likewise, fellas. Thank you. And Pete, uh, thanks for stopping by. and <clears throat> giving us some insight into the Ponzi that is Australian property. Nice. <laughs> yeah, for the, for the Sydney-based uh, cohorts, I look forward to seeing you in the Clock Hotel in early January. I can't wait. Oh, we'll get that set. Thank, uh, thanks a lot, Pete. Man. It's been uh, sensational. Yeah, Pleasure. Get, Cheers, guys. Yeah, get, uh, get uh, the Clock Hotel. We'll let everybody know. Um, get the Clock Hotel in the diary. The show is produced by Rick Salter. Thank you, Rick. And we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.